Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Over 6 million Venezuelan refugees are currently seeking asylum around the world. In September alone, between 1,400 and 1,600 fled Venezuela every day. Today, we'll hear the story of an anonymous guest who gained asylum in the U.S. four years ago. She's speaking anonymously because the government there is repressive and controlling to an extent that those of us born in free countries truly can hardly imagine or even believe. In fact, as an example, your thumbprint is scanned in Venezuela to do something as basic as buying groceries. And our guest was, in fact, blackmailed and coerced under the threat of having her access to groceries revoked. So with this level of oppression in a country, our guest's family is in actual legitimate danger of retaliation simply because of the story that our guest is sharing today. And that is why she remains anonymous. But in light of this danger, why is she choosing to speak at all? Well, first, because we do have a fundamental need to share our stories. But second, and more importantly, because our guest today wants to give a voice to these millions of refugees. She wants to remind all of us where they came from, why they left, and what they've risked to leave. There are so many lessons for us in my guest's story. There are political lessons in the way that the current government came to power and consolidated that power. There are lessons of compassion and empathy for every single individual that is leaving in this massive migration. There are lessons of courage, bravery, and sacrifice that we can learn when we consider what so many risk for their families to have a better life. There are lessons of gratitude that we can learn when we're reminded to savor the little tiny moments, like her memories of sorting beans for the recipe that she shares today. And finally, there are lessons of friendship and kindness in this story, where three immigrants came together in a tiny apartment in a major U.S. city to help one another launch their new lives. I really do believe that this is one of the most important episodes I've ever released. And for that reason, today I am asking you, I mean specifically you, if you are listening to this right now, will you please share this story? I do think all of us believe that we should be a voice for the voiceless. And today, as this guest literally can't risk her family's stability by sharing her own story with her name attached, we can share it for her. So would you please think of someone right now who would want to hear this and send it along to them? I know that would mean a lot to me and it would mean even more to our guest and the refugees that she wants to speak for today. Thank you so much and welcome to our anonymous guest. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. No, thank you for giving me the space. Is um, so. It's the first time I'm telling my story, and you know, it took a while. And I'm mm-hmm. glad, you know, there is the space to talk. <laughs> yes, I'm very. 
I'm very interested to hear. I want to say at the outset, I don't even know your story. And I already know it's brave because anytime you pick up and leave, that's brave. Yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, leaving in any condition is already hard. Mm. But when you are forced to, mm. then, you know, it. I believe it's even harder, but then you don't have an option, you know. The only option is overcoming and do the best you can with what you have. Mm. So I believe, you know, when there is no option, it is what it is. Then you make a way. Yeah. It, it needs to happen. Yeah. So make it happen. Okay. First of all, how long have you been in the U.S.? So I came to the U.S. Uh, to stay permanently around four years ago. Mm -hmm. And who did you come with? Uh, just my son. Just just you and your son? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was us. <laughs> okay. Just you. Just you with someone dependent on you as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. it, it was definitely hard. You mm -hmm. know, it's scary too. Mm -hmm. Having a 10 months old, you have to take care of in the most basic needs, I'm talking about feeding him and, mm -hmm. you know, finding a space to, to live in. It's, it was hard, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. When you have a 10 month old, there's no like, oh, you go play with this for a minute while mommy takes care of something else. A 10 month old is dependent on you every minute of every day. You can't leave them alone. Yeah. In the most basic ways, feeding mm -hmm. him and, um, you know, also, I have no family to, you know, like taking care of him was hard. No one to, when you have family, there is always support, right? But when right. you lose that, then uh, it's, it's just you. It's harder. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a huge family and we're going to talk about that. Um, but before we do, so why you said you had no option. Um, what happened leading up to you leaving and why, why, why did you have no option? So it's just, it is a long story and like it just, so it didn't happen at once, right? Mm. It was something that started building up um, my personal story at the same time, the country story, you know, the historical moment the country was um, going through, it's still going through. Uh, but at the time, um, you know, it just went building up, building up, building up. So let's let's talk about the country story maybe a little bit and then um and then we'll talk about your personal one. So what what happened exactly to raise the alarm bells in his head in your head? What did you see happening? Yeah, so it's uh, in Venezuela the situation is very complex. There are so many things going on at the same time. In one side you have this economic crisis that you know, it's definitely pushing everyone to the limit. We are talking about inflation, hyperinflation, actually, that is only seen in countries that are at war. And even though we are not at war, the inflation is that kind of inflation. You know, we are talking about in some point it reached 600% of inflation rate, which is, I mean, only... Yeah. People who have lived in that kind of economy knows how hard it is to feed a family, to have access to tra transportation, 
Then in the other hand, you have the political crisis where we live in a political system where there is no freedom, no channels like public channels have been closed down, shut down. There is no free access to press information. And, you know, it's just your basic freedom needs are not there. And then the humanitarian crisis, people being put in jail, incarcerated, torture, or uh, for no reason, right? So it all said the situation where to for you to question, should I stay, should I leave, who I feed my family? When is my, it would be my turn to go through to jail? I don't know. Like, for example, I still have a sister living in Venezuela, and she's... Wow. It's very hard for me to think, you know, when is, it will be her turn. And it's scary, right? And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot going on. Wow. And right now, it seems like, you know, I often hear, like... Venezuela, Venezuela is getting better, but it's not in terms of maybe the inflation rate is going down, but it's still at 130% in June, you know, like Jeez. it's still not good. It's just better yeah. than back then, but is it good or is it livable? I don't think so. Right, right. Um, yeah, and, so. Yeah, there must be a root cause to all of this. And it sounds like you're feeling like even if the inflation maybe is better, the root cause has not been addressed. It haven't. It's still happening. And then if you have a different like political belief or you are fighting for human rights, then your chances of making it there is, you know, it's it's just very difficult. Mm. Um, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a very complex situation. Mm. And it's not getting any better, in my opinion. Mm. Did you see this coming? Did you see that it was going to get so bad? Or did it take you by surprise when it happened? You know, it all started back in 1998 when uh, Chavez was elected president. And surprisingly, most of the population, voting population at the time, voted for him. So it was a vote of hope. People was expecting a change for more of, you know, wanting more social justice. And that was the promise. So it all started with actually a lot of hope. You know, people were actually happy they won and they were the new presidents. And yeah. um, but soon after that, um, slowly things uh, were getting, for example, the private um sector on the country was completely dismantled. Companies were taking over land. Wow. Um, you know, if you have a private for example, my parents, they are doctors. Okay. And they're, they have um, uh, like a private clinic practice mm. and they have no freedom over how to manage their own clinic. You know, they were just... Um, you know, pushed to do things and 
everything they were pushed to have what to use, what not to use when it, it was just mm. not until they just took over. Wow. Right. And make it public. Wow. Um, and add to that the the fact that back then you couldn't find even a tablet of acetaminophen, Tylenol, you know what is yeah, acetaminophen, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um to treat fever. So how do you manage a clinic that way? And that's wow. just one example that happened to food companies. So there was a very bad situation at the supermarkets where you can find a bag of rice or flour. And of course, because there was this, I, I'm trying to find the word in English, um, but when you can find food, the little food you find, it's of course, it's so expensive. Right. You know, and there was... right it just started rolling and rolling and rolling. Right. It was too big. Right. And it didn't happen at once. It happened, you know, throughout, you know, then later Chavez died. And this guy who is, was even more <laughs> unprepared than Chavez was, you know, to go over a country that was said to fail, basically. Wow. And then there's when the situation was really bad. Mm. You know, it was a combination of bad policies with circumstances, like the yeah. oil price was falling. So, yeah, wow. it was it was a mess. <laughs> was- wow. Okay. So, in 1998, when he was elected and things started down this road, how old were you at that time? So, uh, imagine. Um, the sad part is it's, it's happening so long. Mm. Like I can still remember what the country was before, mm-hmm. you know, like I remember before Chavez going to the supermarkets and coming back with lots of food and we were not like a considered like a wealthy family, we were, mm. you know, working class family. And, um, it was good for us. We mm-hmm. got to the supermarket, we came back with foods and it was, you know, a lot to choose from. And it was actually a fun part for life. Mm. We were, imagine, six siblings going with the parents to the supermarket mm-hmm. to choose the food and come back. It was definitely part of our weekend fun plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it became a nightmare after that but I have a niece who was actually born on 1998 and she doesn't know any difference you know mm-hmm. it's it having this for her her mm-hmm. whole life mm-hmm. and she's now I believe um I don't know how old is she if she was born in 1998 she's 24 right 24, yeah 1998 to 2022 yeah 24 and this is all she knows exactly yeah and that's the new generation yeah no. Yeah. So let's uh, talk a little bit about what it was like before. Tell me about this recipe that you gave and what you remember about these huge family gatherings. Yeah. You know, um, so we were six siblings. Six far. siblings. Where yeah. are you in the lineup? And the second one. <laughs> You're second out of six. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I count my aunts and uncle. My mom have a huge family. I believe they are nine. Wow. 
yeah, they are not all alive right now, but back then they were. And my grandmother was alive. And then from my dad's side, there were always also Sikhs and, you know. Yeah, that is a huge family. Yeah, and then let's talk about the cousins. My mom has one sister who has only one kid, but then that's her. Mm. And the others have four each, or my my mom has six. So it was definitely, you know, family gatherings were really busy. (laughs) Yes, you. There's no way you're under fifty people. It's oh. always fifty people or more. Yeah, it's it was a lot of people usually on the weekends or imagine holidays. It mm. was just, you know, it's a huge family. Mm. Yep, yeah, like I love. One of the things I remember was walking, and it was funny to see my mom walking with six kids and all, you know, young age and one fall in the corner, (laughs) the other one cry and the other one falls over two blocks from here. Um, So it was kind of a, you know, a main memory in my head. And then all of this was to meet with the family, the cousins, the uncles, probably some games and cooking. So, of course, when you have a family this big, you need a dish that is generous and abundant and will leave everyone happy. Mm-hmm. You know, no one is hungry. Yeah. But of course, that's what this dish come into the table. Mm. It's a very generous dish. Pabe John Criollo is uh, um, actually, a story said, I'm not sure this is actually true, but it said, it was um, created by slaves oh. where they will collect uh, whatever was left over from their, um, you know, I don't know, um, you know. Yeah. Before, and they will put it together and make this dish. So that's, wow. whole, you know, what we said is the background of the dish. And so it was made of leftovers, but of course it's, you know, it was also associated to be very cheap. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's true. Like, you know, beans are back then, I don't know, right now we're considered to be an easy cheap yeah. access food mm-hmm. to access food. And then also the meat is, it was associated to be a cheap cut. Which is, okay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What, what cut of pork do you use? Uh, so we use, uh, what is called a skirt, I believe it's in Spanish. It's the, uh, I'm not sure the, it's the, that, like it translates exactly to the. Yeah, English. I bet it's the shoulder. I bet it's the shoulder. What did you say the word is in Spanish? It's, it's no pork, it's beef. Oh, it's, oh, beef skirt. Yes. It's, oh, it's expensive here. Beef skirt is expensive in the US. Yeah. So in my country, it's considered a low quality. Interesting. Beef. And one of the things why people don't want that is because it's have like a slow caution. You have to boil it for hours in terms yes. to make it soft and edible. Yeah. Um, so no one wants it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they said. But then when you have family gathering, you get that because it's cheap, even though you have to cook it for longer. And then mm-hmm. you take it to work. <laughs> and then you bring it to work. <laughs> put the kids to work put the kids to work oh what was your job oh my goodness I remember there was 
it, it was different every time, but it because it's a dish that is composed for different elements. I remember sitting on the table for, I don't know, what's it felt like hours picking up the black beans, picking <laughs> you know? out the black beans. Yeah. Do you from have the pods? Not the pods, but, um, you know, not before, before when I was a kid, mm. we get the black beans and not pre-pack like in the supermarket or can yeah but you we get it like in a bag you would go to the market and get it in a bag so it was a lot of dirt trucks bad beans in there so it was your job to spread them on a, on the table and start picking one by one what you consider edible what not and wow. then separating the stones it have a wow. lot of drugs on it. Oh yes, yeah. You had to sort it. My mom used to have to do that with peas, like um, split peas. When she bought split peas for split pea soup, she'd spread them like on a sieve, and then yeah, pick out the um, pick out the rocks. Yeah, exactly. So we, okay, that. But it was a lot of beans. Like it was such a gigantic yeah. <laughs> for fifty or sixty or seventy people. Yeah, yeah. And then sorting out that was you know a kid job. Yes. Our moms will just put us on the table, all sitting together, just picking out wow. the black beans. Mm-hmm. And we'll spend hours there. And then one fun job I remember doing is after the beef was cooked and soft, then you'll see it just shredded it. Mm. You know, like pull it apart. Mm-hmm. And it was fun because as you were doing it, you know, you started with one and a half kilograms, you will have left only one. Yeah. <laughs> while you were doing that so everyone wanted to do that job of course yeah (laughs) snack on the best parts the fatty parts (laughs) (laughs) so uh that was the kids job and then of course the older kids were shopping and Mm. you know whatever was needed to make the sofrito and the moms will take care of the cooking and seasoning it was definitely fun wow wow your parents were both doctors yes Yes, wow. they were both doctors. They are now retired. Um, mm. Yeah, but back then, you know, they were just in the hospital all the time. And, well, I know, was going to say that's a big job to work at the hospital all the time and then come home and to do that. That's a big job. This was a weekend job. A weekend job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Doing the week will eat easier dishes for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, you know, one of the questions you asked me before is mm. who taught me to cook? Yes. And that's a very interesting question. But mm. Don't tell my mom I'm saying this, okay? <laughs> she was a really bad cook. No way. Yes, yes, yes. She was really. And I believe it was associated to being a doctor. Mm-hmm. She have no time to cook. Yeah, over. you can't do everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she will probably put together something very bad. Like, I don't know and then fed us that and leave so from a very young age I was pushed to learn Uh uh-huh like I couldn't eat that anymore (laughs) (laughs) so you knew it wasn't just later you looked back and said oh she wasn't really good even at the time you thought oh this (laughs) yeah yeah it was really bad um also uh you know when you have to work in parents Mm. you have six siblings Mm -hmm. uh you know, we were often at home, have assassinated mm-hmm. pasts. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I remember I was the one cooking all the time and I had my sister washing the dishes, which I really appreciate. Uh-huh. <laughs> just and I have my brother taking out the garbage and my sis- my older sister was in charge of the, you know, wiping the floors and mm-hmm. dusting. So we were, we have to do it. We, yeah. We, you know, auction. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This aunt who was washing over us while we were alone at ha- at home, mm. and a lot of the times I was in the kitchen, she was there too, and I learned a lot from her. Mm. Uh, I don't remember specific uh, recipes I have learned from her. She mm-hmm. died when I was, I believe, fourteen years old. Wow! Um, but I remember her cooking. She was a good cook. <laughs> she was. This was was this your mom's sister? My dad's sister. Your dad's sister. Did she live with you? Uh so we she didn't live in my house, mm. but the family owned like this property, mm-hmm. uh, which was like a big land, not big, but you know, easily you can fit fit there like six houses. Wow. Um, so it was kind of like a nice um, property. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my aunts built their homes there. Mm-hmm. I believe this land was a gift from my granddad. Wow. So imagine you have this, you know, my granddad bought the land thinking for the future for mm-hmm. his kids. And then the kids went there and built their houses. So we all lived together there. Wow. Um, so it was easy for her to wash over us when I see, you know, well, and you guys were really taking care of yourselves as well. If you're doing the cooking, your sister's cleaning your brother. I mean, (laughs) she was just there in case of a major emergency and then just kind of to keep you company to, like you said, to teach you some cooking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also she was uh, probably helping us too. I kind of, I'm sure remember her coming over and doing homework with us and, Mm. You know, she was a big part of growing up. I, she mm-hmm. have a little daughter who was my age. So mm-hmm. we grew together. We went to school together. And um, mm-hmm. it was definitely hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is great memories there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful memories. And this is this is so um, different, I think, from our culture. And But I'm just thinking about your parents, both as doctors. And really, in a way, could they have done that if you're on wasn't there. I mean, this idea of extended family, helping extended family and just fitting in where needed is such a, such a beautiful cultural tradition. Yeah. It's, I, I think having family around definitely make it easier for them to go, you know, build the life they wanted to build or they dream of. Mm. And having my aunt, she was like, doing everything yes <laughs> yeah I don't know um do you think she was living the life she dreamed of I mean that might have been what she wanted too you know she have a very hard um life like she lost her husband due to cancer two wow. weeks before when I was nine mm. um but also she had a lot of support too mm-hmm. like we never went through things alone mm-hmm. you know Everyone was helping everyone mm. in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just easier to go through things because life has those moments, you know. 
mm-hmm. where not everything is what you dream of or how you want it to be. Mm-hmm. But having family around definitely is a big, big, big help. Yeah. So I think I'm realizing, you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of people immigrate from here and there. And um, some people that I've talked to, they were kind of a little bit like loners in their culture. So it was just kind of a matter of switching, switching homelands. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to minimize what anyone has done, but I'm really, I think, impressed with the magnitude of the loss that you experienced when you came here because you had such a huge, tight family unit and so much support in that. So it, I'm really realizing it must have been because you had no other choice. So uh, yeah, tell me about your personal story. Like now we understand the backdrop and we understand you would not have left if you had any other choice. Um, so tell me, tell me and take, take as long as you want, go back as far as you'd like in the story. Tell me about yours. Yeah, so um, I try everything not to having to leave, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I mean everything, I mean it. I try very hard. I will tell you what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was working as a country. Mm-hmm. I have a great job. You know, I was working there for, you know, years and I love my job. Then I decided to become a mom. Mm-hmm. And I took a year just to have my kid. I got a new apartment. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. I have a beautiful life there. And, you know, living my dream life, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. When I decided to become a mom, I got the news one day that my son was being born with a medical orthopedic condition that needs treatment as soon as possible after birth. Right. Wow. The situation in the country was already deteriorating. Yeah. You know, the medical system was collapsed. Mm. I knew my son wouldn't be able to get the treatment he just I won mm. um, if I stay there. Mm-hmm. I, so I decided to move to the US mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, I could afford to come here and get him treated here. Mm-hmm. And you know, then go back to my country. That was my plan. Mm-hmm. So I did that. Mm-hmm. Came here. My son was born. Everything was going to plan. He was born here in the U.S. Yes. Oh wow. Okay. And he got treatment um, right away. Mm-hmm. Um, by when he was six months old, mm-hmm. they said, "Okay, we have done what we have to do for now. You can go back to your country." Mm-hmm. So. I did. I went back to my country um, for, uh, you know, being uh, born from a Venezuelan mom. He had the right to be a Venezuelan citizen. Uh, citizen, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So I tried to register him here before I go back. And they decided they won't give him the citizenship here. So wait here in the U.S.? Yes, right. so I tried to register him in like in the consulate, like oh, uh-huh. a lot of people will do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they will just deny it. They will say we can't register him. Venezuela was denying him. Yes, Venezuela was denying him Venezuelan citizenship. Yes. Okay. So 
I said, how is that possible? I need to go back to my country. That's what my plan. I have my job waiting there, my house there. I need to go back as soon as possible. And so they said, no, we can't do it here. They quite didn't explain to me exactly why they would reject his registration or anything. So I didn't register him as a, an American either because I, I have no interest on doing so. At mm-hmm. least at the time, you know, mm-hmm. my issue was to go back to my country. Mm-hmm. And um, so I extended my stay here more than I, I wanted because then I couldn't go back to my country. So what mm-hmm. I did is I registered him as American mm-hmm. and got him a Venezuelan tourist visa mm-hmm. to go back to my own country. Right? Crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's when things started getting crazy. Um I went back to my country and I could get in. I tried to register him then. And it was a story. They were asking questions like, um, why was he born there? And they won't take my reasons. They were just say, no, who is paying for your trips there? What are you doing there? They started making conspiracy theories of mm-hmm. who, why I was there. I believe because of my job, mm-hmm. that was a reason to turn on the alarms for them. Mm-hmm. So they will not register him there neither. I try in my own town, I try in the capital, nothing happened. And it was just, you know, not happening. Um, his tourist visa was about to expire. I so, see. I needed to, I mean, he couldn't stay in Venezuela. And I decided, okay, I'll go back. I go out, yeah. um, have a vacation somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse for a vacation. Yeah. And then um, come back, right? And he can stay again six months or whatever they allow yeah. <clears throat> So. So you thought you would leave, renew the visa renew the tourist visa and then come back in under another tourist visa. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So on my way out, it was just horrible. They were, I was staying on the airport and they were asking where the dad of the kid was, but I'm seeing, I'm a single mom. And I, it was a reason for them to just Mm -hmm. make more theories about, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just, it makes no sense when you think. Yeah. What, what are they afraid of? What are they afraid of if your son goes to Venezuela or was it about you not being there? What, what's even, I I guess I just can't even understand why cause this trouble. What are they thinking? It's just, uh, you know, they just speak. I really, you know, that's the thing. Things don't make sense anymore. It's almost like it's paranoia. Yes, that's what happened when you have a, a government there that is just out of control and they think everyone is, you know, plan a part of a plan to get overthrow the them. them. Yes. And it's not true. It's just their idea of, you know, whoever is going to the US is just planning something or bringing something. I don't know. It was just insane. And um, on my way out, so I was separated from my kid. Oh, wow. We are talking about a 
I don't know, at the time he was like maybe eight months old, mm-hmm. right? And it was the worst time of my life in survival mm. for my kid. I could hear him crying mm. and they were asking stupid questions like, uh, who is paying for this trip? What are you doing there? Are you planning? You know, at the time there was um, this protest happening too. So they were hyper alert of people's going in and out, probably thinking they are bringing money to sustain the protesters or I don't know. I really don't know. I, I don't understand either. Um, mm. So when we were finally let go, they took my son passport, they ripped it off, and they said, just don't come back. And I was put on a fly, fly to Aruba. I remember that was my destination. And I was, you know, my son was undocumented, basically, and we were stuck there for, I don't know, three months, a trip that was supposed to be, I, I don't know, I was planning to stay like 15 days or so. And um, I was stuck there, nowhere wow. to go alone. Because there was no, they ripped up the passport, threw it in the trash. You had nothing for your child. Yes, nothing. Not even like, I couldn't even take a flight to the U.S., that easily you know yeah so um i went you know to the u.s embassy there to see where can i get a passport or at least a travel permit for my kid to travel now remind me of something this is i should know my own country's laws but because your son was born in the u.s he's officially a u.s citizen right isn't that the deal Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, but then you have to make it happen. You know, he have to ride, but then you need a process. Yeah, now you have to prove he was born there, and that was through his passport, which they just ripped up. I guess you had a birth certificate? Yeah, but I, I was carrying nothing, you know? Um, you what? Sorry? I wasn't carrying. You weren't carrying anything, anything because you were just going to leave and come back. That's right. Yeah. yeah so oh, my word. It was, uh, so I was, you know making calls back and forward, calling lawyers. And uh, it was just a mess, you know. So I decided, probably a bad decision, I will smuggle back to my country, you know. Smuggle your son back. Then I did. I just didn't know what to do. And, you know, my own country wasn't helping me. Yeah. And holding the war, I was making it to the U.S. Yeah. Um, so I was there and I decided to go back. I have, you know, to pay a lot of money to go in and the experience wasn't nice. I was, you know, sexually assault and oh. it was just a very bad experience. And oh. going back was just a bad decision. So then, what, what did they do with your son to smuggle him? Like, where did they put him? So I was in Aruba. It was a very close, you know, going back to Venezuela by boat. It was just so easy, you know? Oh, it was by boat. You didn't have to get on a flight. No. And I uh, see. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was crazy. And, you know, I did it. 
and it was just a very bad experience. And then I have the government going back to my house because elections were happening at the time. And they were like, if you don't go to vote, we, you know who you are, we know your son is here and you have to vote for us and we have to supervise. If you want your son papers, you <gasps> need to do that. They were blackmailing you to vote for, to reelect. Yes. The president that, and they were blackmailing you that they would never give your son papers if you didn't do it. Yes. Oh and, my word. You know, when you are in that situation, um, you basically yeah. will do anything. Yeah. You do what you need to for your child. Yeah. You are scared. The government yeah. knows where you live and where yeah. you work. And it was, things were getting just worse and worse and worse. And at some point, you know, the same system at the time to go to the supermarket to buy food, they have this like database where your ID and you have to put your fingerprints in the supermarkets, right? And then they were saying, if you don't go bold, you won't be able to access food. And, you know, so I wasn't, you know, you have the option to get food in the black market, but you are paying three, fours. 10 times more the price of the cost of the food. So it was not sustainable. Um, so I decided to make my way to the U.S. And um, my plan was, I still wasn't thinking to come here and stay here, right? I said, I'll go back to the U.S., I will get him his passport, whatever, and I'll try to register him in the um, Venezuelan embassy in mm-hmm. Washington. Mm-hmm. And I would hire a lawyer. So, you know, just I just thought if I get him the Venezuelan papers, all my problems will be solved. Mm-hmm. Right. So I did. I I came back here, I explained to the US what was going on and what I need mm-hmm. to do. They let me in. Everything was fine. I hired a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I was, I did all the process to just hear back. They weren't registered, my son, as a Venezuelan citizen. Mm. You know, they just denied it one more time. Mm. And they didn't explain why the reasons they gave me was just um, makes no sense. Like at some point, they said, last thing they told me was, can you? make a declare you know a letter saying he has a dad and we rise over him in case it show up and I was like, he has a dad with what over him who fights you know oh who fights over him yeah. oh like there's a custody um battle yeah and i was like you know what i can you're asking me too much i will never do that i will never risk my son's safety mm-hmm. his way listeners, I promise this will be a super short interruption and we will get right back to this interview. So it is most definitely fall now. And even though I really, really don't like to think about Christmas until after Thanksgiving, well, as a creator looking to support this podcast, I just have to take advantage of the season. And I know that you will 
understand and support that. So as you look ahead for Christmas, even if it's just in the back of your mind, I would love to remind you that there is a way you can buy super personalized, meaningful gifts for your friends and family, and also support the podcast. And the way you can do this is by shopping at the Storied Recipe print shop. There you will find beautiful prints that you can feature in kitchens, dining rooms, little reading nooks, and every image in that shop celebrates extraordinary light and the good, good gift of food. Also, even more importantly, every image in the storied recipe print shop literally tells a story, the story of one of my guests. So, When you give one of these prints or when you hang one in your own home, you will be helping realize my vision for this podcast. You'll be helping anyone who views that image to become more grateful for the beauty of our food and to honor those that loved us through their cooking. So you can shop the print shop simply by going to thestoriedrecipe.com and clicking on print shop on the top menu. Okay, that is it. Thank you for your patience. And now we are heading right back to the interview. I don't know. I was thinking so many things at the time. Like, so wait, wait, why did they want you to say there was a custody battle? What were they trying? I don't know if they were looking just for a reason not to give me the papers yeah. or even crazy thing, more, even more crazier things like taking him from me. Yeah, exactly. They were going to then manufacture the other. I mean, it's becoming clear. It's all about control. Like why would they give you freedom when when they had this over you, they could ensure that you would vote the way that they wanted you to vote. I, And I just also have to say here, it's a minor part of your story, but it blows my mind that the government is managing what people buy at the grocery store. You have to put in your fingerprint just to buy food. This is insane to me. It is. It is. It's terrifying. It's, um, you know, I don't know if it's like that right now, but at the time they make it sounds like it was a plan for people to guarantee people to have access to food for people, you know, so they right. can control the prices. They can control of because of production was so small. Mm-hmm. They were making it. Um, I forgot. I don't know the word in English, but how much food you buy, you know, like you go yeah. to the supermarket, you can say, oh, I want three bags of flowers. No, you can only take one. You know, mm-hmm. so people will have all people will have access. So it sounds mm-hmm. like they were doing it. Because- right. They were justifying their evil by calling it good, yes. which is a common tactic uh, among. This is just a common evil tactic is to call to call bad good. Yes, exactly. So they were making and of course, poor people agree with it. You know? Right. And. In terms of, oh, they are doing it because of us, of rich people, mm-hmm. you know, creating that break between, mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't mm-hmm. like the word poor and rich, but uh, they make it sound like it was social justice. Happening. Right, right. They created a narrative so that they could justify what they were doing. But in the end, it was a narrative and it was the actions were hurting everyone. Exactly. Yeah. So um, it was just. It was just crazy. Like, you know, when they control people, you know, who access to food and who doesn't and know where you live. And then they know if you vote or you don't vote. It just um, gets out of hands. This is out of hand. Yes, that's that's an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was here 
I wanted to go back to my country. I remember when I said bye in the airport to my mom, I said, I'll be back for Christmas. Mm. And I wasn't. Mm. Mm. I'm so sorry. Do not be sorry. This is terrible. This is just terrible. You did nothing wrong. All you did was try to get the best care for your child. Yeah. And that one act, which was the right choice, yeah. separated you from your country and your family. Yeah. So I remember it was, I don't remember exactly what month it was, but I remember my son was under the age of one when I came here. It was like about to be a year old mm -hmm. and um, probably was like October. I remember coming, it was almost fall or fall. I don't remember, but I remember, you know, coming from a very hot. <laughs> and it was a cold New York, yeah. windy, probably cloudy. So I remember the cold. Mm. <laughs> so it was around that time of the year. And my plan was to go back for Christmas in December mm. or even before, but I just couldn't. You've never been back. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm, I have managed to, you know, it was a big relief when um, once here I gave off from registering my son as a Venezuelan citizen, even though I know by heart he is, Of course. Yeah. And, um, you know, I contact a lawyer because now what to do? I, even though I have friends here, I met before when I was doing all the, you know, the birth things and I, I made friends here. So I wasn't completely alone. That's amazing. Um, I have great support from the start and Um, you know, now I have, an, at the time I had another problem, which was navigate my legal situation here <laughs> unexpectedly because it was never my plan. And so I was able to find a very good lawyer, which I'm thankful for. And um, I mean, I basically said I'm stuck, what to do. And I was lucky they granted me the asylum condition And, you know, those days are far behind, like, and now I'm okay. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I couldn't work because by law, asylum seekers are not, a, like, allowed to work. Okay. So I was uh, at home. I was living with two of friends sharing the apartment, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, the three of us, my two friends and me, and my 10 months old, you know, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I have nothing to do. So what I was doing then was cooking. <laughs> I started cooking like my for my friends and they would go to work and come back and have a meal. You know, it's the only thing uh -huh. I remember doing when I was uh -huh. home. Mm -hmm. Um getting food ready for the people mm. come coming back, you know. Mm. And so I did, and they liked the food. It was You know, my, I always said, like, I have the UN in my household <laughs> because I have one friend who is from Nepal. Mm. My other friend was, um, it's, you know, she have also, it is an Iranian Jew. 
an Iranian Jew. And, you know, it was very interesting. I started learning about their food and trying to cook it. And, you know, this is um, this is amazing. Yeah. And that's how I started food blogging. This, this is amazing. This is the most amazing food blog origin story I've ever heard. <laughs> so I decided, oh, well, since I'm doing nothing, I'll just, you know, write the recipes down and, uh, you know, I just started. And soon after that, um, people were showing interested, interest on my photography. Mm. You know, like I remember this chef, local chef, contacting me saying, oh, I like your photography. Can you do this for me? I said, yes, I can. And, you know, slowly it built up. You know, I realized, oh, maybe that's something I can do. And that's how it started. This is amazing. And here I am, five years later, doing the same (laughs) cooking and Tomorrow, actually, I'm starting culinary school. You're starting culinary school tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. This is amazing. So I have I have so many questions right now. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, first of all, I have to say, this is actually making me want to cry because I know I don't live in a perfect country. I know there's a lot of things wrong with America. But for a Venezuelan, an Iranian Jew and a Nepalese person to come together, share an apartment, support each other. To me, this this is the vision of America that I do believe in. And that is really beautiful to me. So can you tell me, how did you guys find each other? I know. So it's, um, I think there was, it was meant to happen that way. Mm. Like, um, you know, the first time I heard the news about my son mm-hmm. being born with this medical condition, which wasn't life-threatening, it just needed to be fixed as soon mm-hmm. as possible so he's able to walk and stuff like that. And so I have this college who works for, you know, we met for work. And I contacted her and I said, look, I'm doing this. Um, can I just, you know, go there and as you are the only person I know, of course, I wasn't, you know, paying for everything. Like, it wasn't a money issue or anything. It's just, you know, just to have support. I was delivering a kid on our country. I don't know. Right. You know? So she was a colleague who lived in the U.S. Yes. And you reached out to her just for support while you were here the first time. Yes. I see. Okay. Yeah, so I said, I'm, you know, I'm doing this and I don't know anyone but you. It's it okay? You know, just... I'm trying to choose where, what city to go. And as she said, of course you can come here. And she was my main support. And she actually said, you don't need to rent a house. I have an extra room, you know, just come in. I share the apartment with this woman who is a nurse. And so that was perfect. Wow. (laughs) This is amazing. Yes. I was like, she was at the time she was a nurse student. She wasn't graduated yet. Mm -hmm. She was doing she was a nurse already, but she was doing like a um, graduated school, like, mm-hmm. you know, after yeah. graduated school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably a nurse, pra- getting to be a nurse practitioner or yes. something like that. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it was. But okay. it was, and look, at, it was amazing because she's actually a pediatric nurse practitioner. This is incredible. <laughs> I, you know what? 
it's it, I can't say no to that. It's perfect. Yeah. And so they were a big support. You know, the first time I was here when my son was, you know, being taken care of, it was amazing. Like I can't complain. I have all the support I needed. They were my family here. And then the second time um, I came back, they were there again. And they are now my son's godmothers. Oh. So it's, it'll work out. Yeah. They are still in our life. Like now we don't share the apartment, but. Yeah. You c- yeah. <laughs> right, right. So a situation like that bonds you for life. Exactly. Mm. Now we are just, you know, they are, they love my son too. Like, yeah, I believe, you know, they have a huge love for him. Yeah. And they were actually very sad we were leaving. And then I won't say they were happy we came back because the situation wasn't about, you know. Yes. No happiness there, but definitely they were loving and supporting and they helped me to go through, you know, lawyers and calls. And imagine I barely speak English at the time. So they were always there to, you know, kind of figure out this together. And it all worked out like we have, you know, yeah. settled in. This know. is amazing. So apart from them, what has your experience been like as... um like, how do you feel that you are received in this country? What has been, what's been hard about that? What's been your experience? Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm very lucky. Mm. I have found an easy way mm. in terms of, you know, my ways to have access to work. And it, it's, I don't feel anything but welcome. Mm. You know, even to make my papers. Mm-hmm. I didn't went through what other Venezuelans go through mm-hmm. to, ma- to navigate the legal mm-hmm. system here. And, you know, I often hear like asylum seekers or refugees have to go through years of hearings and process and to finally their case to be denied. It wasn't mm-hmm. my case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a year, my case was solved and I have my papers and all positive. I'm so happy for you. I just feel welcome. That's wonderful. I'm yeah. so happy to hear that. The For your food blog, is it all Venezuelan food? No. So one of the things I miss the most is the food. Mm. Because, like, for example, this dish I share with you, Pabellón Criollo, you know, that's a family dish. Mm-hmm. And I can't even imagine cooking that amount of food for a household of two or three. Right, right. No sense. I will have leftovers for a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, for me, eating local, it's very important. So finding ingredients is very, Venezuelan ingredients is, but still, I managed to eat some Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. my, we eat arepas in basically all the time you do yeah. <laughs> one <laughs> of the most popular recipes ever on the podcast <laughs> yeah they are very good have you tried them oh yes you know I make everything that my guests give me they are still I would say top three recipes I've ever been given 
So have you made your living for the last four years as a food blogger and food photographer? I have. That's incredible. I was, you know, at the beginning, of course, I wasn't paying trend uh, because my friends just loved me a bit in apartment. And uh, I was helping with the food here and there, basically, mm-hmm. you know, buying whatever I need to cook for them. And mm-hmm. I have a lot of economical support in the beginning. But as I told you, soon after, people were showing interest in my photography, especially not much in my cooking. Mm-hmm. It was most about the photography. And I was able to make like long-term clients that mm-hmm. I still work over the years up to today. And, you know, now I have my own apartment in, um, you know, closer to my school, my son's school. And it's just, it just works. This out. is amazing. And what are your hopes and dreams um, for the culinary school? What do you want to do with that? So... <laughs> <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, more than the photography, which is my main income right now, what I love is cooking and mm-hmm. feeding people, mm-hmm. you know? And what I, what I want is just to dedicate my life to that more mm-hmm. than the photography. If anyone can do it, it's you. I have complete <laughs> trust and belief in you. It's I hope extraordinary so. what you've done. Thank you. So your son is four now, five? He's five. He's turning six in November. He's turning six in November. So how do you talk to him about this, about being Venezuelan, about what happened? How do you talk to him about it at all? Yeah, I don't even know how you would go about that because I'm sure you talk to your family on FaceTime and stuff like that all the time. How do you explain to him? Yeah, so it's very... So there is a lot of opportunities to teach him about you know, why we are here mm-hmm. and why we can go back to our country, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I remember one day, I, I don't remember exactly why he asked for it, but he said, well, I can go visit my cousins, right? Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, there's, you know, he was four at the time. And I said, you know, there's, in his own words, there's a bad guy in the country. Mm-hmm. And until they are there, we can go back you know, mm-hmm. and m- more or less words, I explained to him why we're n- we were not there. Mm-hmm. And it stuck to him so deeply that I remember later, I don't know, months later, he went to his school and he had this activity where he had to bring some memorabilia from their uh, culture. And we have none, right? Like I don't even have um, a flag or Mm. Um, a piece of art or mm. nothing. I have nothing because I wasn't planning to mm-hmm. leave, basically. Mm-hmm. And he went, you know, to his class and when he had to explain to his teacher why he didn't have mm. a Venezuelan item to show to his classmates. Mm-hmm. Because we can't go back onto the bad guy leave. <laughs> he wow. had this before. <laughs> You know, yeah. so he understood in, yeah. in in his own words, he, you know, he could explain what ha- was happening to his teacher. Yeah. And it stuck to him, you know, and he understand. Wow. And um, those are the hard moments where you said, oh, it's hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but we, we manage. We are here. We are good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, now, you know, that my legal situation here is in, in a good place mm-hmm. in terms of papers and stuff. We managed to actually see the family this year and this summer. Oh, you got to go to Venezuela. No, no they came. <laughs> they came here. No, they can't come here neither. So what we did is we traveled to um, um point like in the middle. Okay. And we have like a family vacation for three weeks. Oh, that, did was, you go to Aruba again? No. No? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we went to, we visited. Oh, that's wonderful. And yeah. You know, after all this year, it was definitely emotional and. Mm, that was, makes me cry. I just can't imagine when you first saw them again. Yeah. And of course, saying goodbye it was very emotional too, but it, it was worth it. it yeah. 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 And see the kids playing together like mm-hmm. I did with my cousins, you know? And you've been able to keep a relationship with them because of things like FaceTime. Uh, yes. We are in contact. We call each other. And, you know, sometimes, um, you know, we sing happy birthday on the phone. Mm. Jesus is hard. This is so hard. Mm. I'm sorry. Uh, but it's not mm, different than other immigrants, you know. You, you know, long distance is always hard. Mm-hmm. But then, yes, you manage to stay in contact to, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's incredible how you, you know, you start missing the things that you you ha- have for granted before. Mm. The little things. Like sitting, picking the beans. Mm. 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 Those are the kind of things so you start, you know, all of a the sudden they gain so much value. They gain so much value. Yeah. There's a lot that your story teaches us. I think there's a lot that the Venezuelan story teaches us politically. I think there's a lot that your personal story teaches us. And that is one of the biggest things is to, it's so easy to say, but just to take the time to savor those things, those moments. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the lucky one in terms of mm-hmm. there is a lot of other Venezuelans who are leaving the country right now that have it so much harder. Mm-hmm. You know, like all the time I hear people coming to the to the US through the Dalian uh, jungle in Panama, you know, and they go through so much and then they come here and I don't know, through the border, yeah. the southern border, you know? Yeah. I was lucky, like I came here on an airplane, which yeah. is quite comfortable. And it's just, I was so lucky. Yeah. You know? And the, as the situation gets worse in Venezuela, the opportunities people have to live in a better condition and a more human condition also decrease significantly. Yeah. You know, before I have a visa, now all the... Uh, you know, the relationship between the U.S. and Venezuela is broken, that they have no options. Like I was able to get my passport, but no one scans now because there is no 
this is Venezuelans, there's no legal way to leave. Yes. Like here in the US, we focus on the way to come in. And that's definitely a broken system that needs to be fixed. But it's missing the point that there's no legal way to leave Venezuela right now. Yeah. Like so many, like my sister, Mm -hmm. the one that is a choice in Venezuela, she still has this, mm, you know, she has tried to get the passport for her daughter Mm -hmm. and for her several times. And every time they just take the money because it's because, you know, you pay for your passports and they just don't, it never happened. It doesn't come or Mm -hmm. the appointment never happened. Mm -hmm. There is like, there's always something and she still have no way to. We all met in my mom, my dad. I have now two sisters. They Mm -hmm. also flee the country for their own personal stories. But we all traveled and met in, and she was the only one who couldn't make it because mm. she had no way to out, you know? Mm. So mm. people is just taking trees with kids. Like I still remember when I took the plane here, you know, I have my baby sitting comfortably in an airplane mm-hmm. with food and, you know, snuggle up. Mm. Now people is just carrying the kids working days, working days to get through a jungle where who knows what happened there, just to make a bit, you know, dreaming of a better life. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I keep going back to your parents, just having to watch all of this. You know, you just, as your kids get older, you just want a good future for them. That's all you want, you know, and you'll do anything. And I just think about your parents and what they've had to watch. They've had to watch a situation go from good where they could provide for their family and care for their patients to then their ability to care for their patients was taken away. And now their ability to like, now they're just watching their kids' futures um, almost just wither. You know, and I just can't imagine how difficult that must be for your parents. Yes, it's uh, it's definitely hard. Um, mm. You know, when you lose control of how you take care of your kids and then seeing them flee and then you start getting lonely, what's supposed to be. Like I remember growing up around my grandmother, mm. you know, all those meetings in the weekends with the cousins mm-hmm. and my grandmother and to think that my mom my dad and are getting older and there's no chance they can you know leave that it's really heartbreaking and I'm sure it is for them too mm-hmm. you know like imagine last time they saw Sebastian he was ten months old mm-hmm. and now they saw him and he's already five years old it's mm-hmm. just it must it, it's horrible what is happening so many families are broken mm-hmm. and we do our best to, you know, stay in contact, but, you know, it's not nearly close to watch the kids mm-hmm. grow mm-hmm. near you. Go ahead. And families are broken, but, you know, it's not happening to one family or two. It is massive. There is no family in Venezuela, I bet, who doesn't have, at least one person out of the country, mm-hmm. all in different circumstances, but it's just 
Venezuela is so broken right now. Yes. And it becomes, I mean, this becomes the issue all around the world. I think when I've talked to people who, um, who have come from countries that have been decimated, you know, by just poor decision-making like this, or just by this need to control, whether it's from inside internal or external forces, um, is you start to face the question of who's left to rebuild. Exactly. I think, you know, rebuilding the country, it will take generations, not just years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like, even I'm sure if the government is removed today, let's say, to repair the social damage it has created, the values, it, you know, because when you have a country that is so broken, where there is no law, where there is no longer any values, because I remember growing up with people that later I heard they are just extorting other people or they become... I don't know. It's crazy stories. Then mm-hmm. re-educate the country, basically. Mm-hmm. It will take generations. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it's lawless. There is no law. It's... Mm-hmm. And when, it I mean, really... mm-hmm. when I mean law, it's not just the legal way, which is a big part of it, but also, you know, like life law the respect those values are just nowhere to be found yeah the moral the moral law has been degraded yes exactly and you know you it's just it's just it will take years generations i will say you know sometimes people say i don't know that i have so much experience with this in my life but i'm i'm feeling it listening to you people talk about how much easier it is to destroy than to build up it is. I mean, that's a scary, scary thought. Yeah, and I, I'm sure there will be a lot of Venezuelans who would like to go back and to build their own. Of course, country. like I would love to. You would do it in a heartbeat, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But again, it's not. It's it's not easy to do. So, no, it would take a lot of effort, a lot of energy, and you know, there they need to be the also the infrastructure to support the people who want to rebuild. Right. Um, So one more question about that situation. Are there people left that support the government or is it just, they have such a chokehold on society right now that even if everyone, I mean, like you look at the situation in Iran, which is breaking my heart because it's this, amazing moment but really what choice chance do the people actually have like i I don't want to be pessimistic but it's going to be repressed again like it just they have nothing to compete against the power of the government you know so is it a situation where people still support this government and prop it up with um their their sort of like moral support and and votes or is it a situation where everyone's sort of against the government at this point but there's just they they have the military control they have the power they have of of wielding food even of you know hurting and arresting people like which which is the situation right now so if you go to venezuela right now mm. we'll find all sorts of people you know 
there is people who support the country because they are getting benefits, some sort of benefit from it in terms of, you know, probably money laundering or, you know. So this is the people who still can afford the expensive inflation style of life. Because they're taking advantage of other people. Yes. Yeah, they've empowered criminalization. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you have those people, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not in their interest to get rid of the the government or make the country any better because it will be the end of their business, right? Then you have people who is not in that position in... But they still support the government because if they don't, they then won't get the monthly bag of food they get Mm -hmm. every week or every month or, I don't know, every whatever. You know, Mm -hmm. they support them because they have no option left. Like they were trying to push me back then to support them just for me to get the papers. Right, right. There is always, you know, those people who are supporting under the promise of a better Right. They're just believing the narrative, even though it's clearly been disproven for decades now. Yes. And then you have the people who don't support the government, but they just don't have way out of the country or for a better life. They are just surviving. Right. Surviving day by day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those are the most affected ones. Those are the ones who are leaving massively. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you know, at some point, they have to leave yeah. or die there. Right, right, right. You know, my interest of sharing the story here is not getting exposure or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's more of you know putting the story out there, mm-hmm. 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 especially these days that you hear Venezuela all the time in the news. Mm-hmm. So people. Uh, can understand how it's impacting mm-hmm. real life, you know, mm-hmm. real people. That is a good question, I think. So for people listening who, like you said, they kind of hear Venezuela in the news all the time, um, what what do you want people to think and to know and to understand when they hear that? You know, it's... Uh, we are not a number. Mm. We are not just a bunch of immigrants that are nobody and you put in a bus and you set them somewhere because they are no longer your problem. Mm-hmm. We are real people and we have stories, we have families. Mm-hmm. We have we are moms mm-hmm. and we are going through a lot and it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a scary and we need to be treated with respect in terms of who we are, what we, why we are here. And if people don't understand why we are here, then we become a statistic, a number you know, I hear all the time in the news, like, that's in Venezuela and we're here in the border. And they, like myself, I was watching the news the other day. 
and I was listening to these Venezuelan immigrants who were put in a bus and sent mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to this mom who was with a 10 years old girl saying, you know, how oh, they were hungry and thirsty and no one gave them water. It's like, how hard could it be just to feed someone and give them water so they can be at least, mm -hmm. you know, treated hum like humans. That's yeah. it. You know, and I was thinking it's because people don't know. People mm -hmm. don't know who these people is or mm -hmm. why they are here. And, you know, telling the story is important. Mm -hmm in my opinion. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's what I want people to realize there is a person behind the number, mm -hmm. a real person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that I don't know if this makes sense. But it makes perfect sense. It's just, it's real people, real life. They have been impacted in ways they didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And they left everything behind, which is not easy. Mm -mm. No, and I think that's my point is to understand that they're real people and that they should be treated humanely is sort of a bare minimum. I think that more um, when people have I am a believer that, I mean, this gets very deep philosophically, but I'm a believer that suffering, you know, shouldn't happen, but it's not necessarily senseless in the sense that I think suffering often teaches us things. And I think for those of us who have just kind of had like this, I mean, of course we all have our issues, right? But for those of us who have had pretty um, stable lives, we don't have the lessons we couldn't have learned. We haven't had the opportunity to learn the lessons that really brave people like you have learned. Um, you didn't set out to learn them. I'm sure, you know, if you could have chosen, you would have not chosen that path. But since that's the path that you were given and you had to walk on it and you learned those lessons, there's so much benefit to the rest of us for listening, for learning. I I feel quite strongly that people who immigrate, whether it's by choice or when they're forced to like you, um, I, I actually kind of put, put um, you on a pedestal. And I feel that that's where we need to be looking and learning um, about what we're actually capable of, um, about how to avoid situations like the ones that you were put in, you know, um, about what it really takes to love a child. I mean, what you've done for your son, how many of us can say that we've sacrificed for our son the way that you have, you know, just all of these things. Um, I think it's a lot more than just understanding your real people. I think it's to say, wow, these are, this is a gift to us that we can learn um, from people who have been pushed to their limit like you said, in ways they haven't even asked for, but have persevered. I mean, look at you. You've come here and started a business all your own. There's all these people out there like, I don't know how to do it. What do I do next? And you were in a situation where you had to make money and you weren't 
asking, how do I do it? You just did it. <laughs> you found a way. I was so amazing. <laughs> like, you know, I was lucky that I found mm-hmm. the right people. I mm-hmm. found the right support. And, you know, that's the thing when you are left with no choice. Mm-hmm. You can't just get up in the morning and said, oh, another day, let's just, you know, get by. It's to just need to, need to make it happen. And there is no mm. other choice. This is amazing. And it's sad that you need to put, you know, go to put yourself in such extreme situation and to bounce back. But it is what it is, you know. Mm. And of course, I if I have the choice, I will choose my comfortable life with my comfortable work. Mm-hmm. You know, my perfect life there. I mean, not perfect, mm-hmm. but very comfortable mm-hmm. instead of going through all the things we went through. But the thing is, there they were no choice. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm the lucky one. There are thousands that are coming in a very different circumstances, mm-hmm. you know, and it's crazy mm-hmm. that People don't understand those are humans' life. This is people, real people, mm-hmm. with real stories with, I don't know, kids. Kids mm-hmm. is always a sensitive part for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we need to understand that. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. Agree 100%. And I really do thank you for sharing this. Um, I promise to you that I'm going to spread it as far and wide as I possibly can. So no, that, so that because people do need to hear it. Sorry. Thank you for opening the space and, um, you know, putting the voices out there. I love your podcast, by the way. Mm, that means so much to me. This is, this is, I just feel so meaningful because like I said, I believe with all of my heart that stories like yours should be honored. I believe that with all of my heart and that is the most important thing to me. Um, I, I feel so honored that I can I can give you the space you deserve it. You really do. I really, really admire you so much. Thank you again to our anonymous guest. You can find her really delicious recipe, this Venezuelan rice and beans and beef in the show notes. Again, I would urge you and ask you and plead with you to share this episode with someone today. Next week, we'll be back with a guest from, well, I'm not going to give it away, actually, (laughs) mainly because I'm a little bit uncertain about the schedule. Um, I'm debating between releasing two episodes, but we will be back next week. And I look forward to um, sharing another powerful story with you then. In the meantime, always appreciate a five-star rating review. And uh, that's it. I hope you have a great week, my friends.